0: Brothers and sisters, if you would turn to your copy of Scripture to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 40. Verses 22 through 40. And as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at our core values as a church. So Jesus is the center of our fellowship as a church. But then around that hub, around that center, are these five core values. Or if you want another image, this is the glue that holds us together as we say, hey, I'm a member of Christ the Redeemer Church. This is what it means to be a member of Christ the Redeemer Church. These are the five things that we hold dear as we live our life around Jesus. And so we're looking at our fourth core value of mercy and mission. And the title of this message is Mercy and Mission, Ready and Waiting. And if you look back over the other sermons, and the sermon next week is going to have something and something to help define what that core value is as it comes from this particular text. But I want to lay a few preliminaries out to make sure we're all on the same page when I talk about mercy and mission. First of all, when we speak about mercy and mission, the reason we have put these two concepts together is to help define what each other mean. See, mercy is helped and given parameters of mission, and mission is given parameters by mercy. A lot of churches talk about mercy ministry as though it's uh, separate from or distinct from mission. Mercy ministry many times can mean simply helping the financially poor. Like if somebody says, hey, we have a mercy ministry, if you look at what their mercy ministry is, it large part is mostly defined by helping those who are financially strapped. And then if you talk about mission as you come to a church, a lot of times mission can mean only international missions. Hey, we're really involved in missions. Well, what we want to do is we want to put these two concepts together because we believe they go together. We believe that mercy and mission go together. When we speak about mercy, we're referring to an overarching disposition that God has towards all of His creation. Right? This is from beginning to end of Scripture, you see God's mercy to His creation, right? In the Garden of Eden, instead of obliterating our first parents, what does He do? He covers the remnants of their sin. He covers their nakedness graciously and mercifully rather than just wiping them off the face of the earth. And then God reveals His glory to Moses and He says, what is my glory? Well, He passes in front of Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, merciful, and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who He is. He defines Himself by mercy. And then Jesus Himself said, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. We have received mercy, so we extend mercy. An author that I uh, really like in contemporary circles is Brene Brown who is a a sociologist psychologist uh, down at the University of Texas and she wrote this we have divided the world into those who need help and those who offer help the truth is we are both those in need of help and those offering help the truth is we are both at the same time and then one of my other favorite authors Henry Nowen writes this the main question is not, how can we hide our wounds? But, how can we put our woundedness in service to others? You have received mercy, and in receiving mercy, you are able to extend mercy. You have been wounded, and you are called to extend that woundedness to others because you have received. God has bound you up. He's bandaged you up, and so you are called to do the same. Not out of obligation. But out of a heart overflowing with, wow, I have received so much mercy and so much grace for my sin. How can I not extend this to other people? And so that, that goes to our own familial relationships and our own relationships to each other as a church. But then it also goes into our community, into our coworkers, workers into where we live too. We are all on a journey, all of us, Christian and non-Christian. We're all on a journey to behold and to be enveloped in the love of God the mercy of God. We are longing for that. The heart's deepest longing is to experience the love of God, and so people fill up their lives with things that will not satisfy, and we do as well. And we need mercy. Therefore, when we speak about mercy as a church, we mean we want to have the same disposition towards those who are seeking after God, as well as those who could care less as well as to those who despise Him. We want to be merciful people because that's who God is. We want to have the same disposition towards all ethnicities of people. Every color of skin, every background, every place, every culture, that we would extend mercy to them and not give a cold shoulder because someone doesn't sound like us or look like us or act like us. We want to have the same disposition of mercy toward the financially poor and the financially wealthy. All people everywhere are called into a relationship with God. So I want to lay that down as the primary building blocks of what we talk about when we talk about mercy, is that every single person, poor and wealthy, black and white, all People need mercy, and that's the kind of people that we want to be. So when we think of mercy ministry, we shouldn't just think, oh, that's our benevolence ministry. No, that's not what that is. Only. It is partly that. But we talk about mercy in this overarching understanding of extending mercy to all people. Now, with that being said, it's also true that when we look at the biblical storyline, the wealthy are often held in high regard while the poor are overlooked. Right, this is what James, Jesus' half-brother, writes about. Right? Don't, when someone who has fine garments and rings on his finger comes, fingers comes into your assembly, don't show him the place of honor and then when somebody comes in and drabs, say, hey, you sit over there so we don't have to look at you or ha- don't have to smell you. Right? No, see, the Bible is very clear with what's in our human heart is that we revere those who are on the Fortune 500 list And those who collect our trash, we overlook. We take them for granted. That ought not to be among the people of God. And so knowing that, God graciously in His Word says, be merciful. And when the light doesn't shine on those who are in the shadows, I want to shine a light on those who are in the shadows. Those who are in deep despair and darkness, who all people everywhere would look past and walk on by. I'm going to shine a light on them because I know what's in the human heart there is a particular bent that God's people are to have there's a particular bent that we are called to have towards those who don't have there is a particular bent that we are called to take action on because left to ourselves we will revere those who have and look over those who have not therefore When we speak about mission, we mean that same disposition that we've talked about is taken everywhere we go. We acknowledge that we are a people sent out. That's what the word missio means. It means to be a sent out people. And so we are always being sent out. As you are going, make disciples, right? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. You are sent. That is not something that you are called to. Okay, now you need to go. The assumption is is that you are already sent. You're already going. You're already on the highways and byways going out. And how are you going to treat others as you interact with them? This is the coupling together of mercy and mission that make each other stronger and that's why we put them together the churches that we start here in the upstate we want them to be merciful churches like an interconnected net i've often talked about like we want to plant multiple churches here in the upstate and and like a knots of a net we want to sweep through this city and through the upstate and capture fish we want to be fishers of men and so this interconnected net of churches will be churches that are merciful churches towards others. This is the vision that we have for international missionaries that what we do here is what we do over there out in the world. And this vision of reaching five unreached people groups in the next 20 years, this hashtag five and twenty that I sometimes uh joke about, that it would be good to just have a little hashtag and say that's that's what we are about. Five and twenty, we want to genuinely reach people who don't have a copy of Scripture. And that's why we've strategically partnered with and give financially to missionaries in different countries uh, that do not have a copy of Scripture, do not have it in their own language. And we want to reach five genuinely unreached people groups. And if you're interested more in that, I'm happy to talk with you about that. But we are calling and asking God to do a work in our midst so that we would be a merciful church who is a missionary church. These movements of mission we want to inspire and enliven. These are all motivated by mercy. We want to do mercy. We want to have mercy on those who are in our immediate neighborhood of the Brandon community and who are the neighbors that God has given us. In Brandon and in the West Village, He's given us both those who have and those who have not. And so we want to show mercy to them and bring them together in this beautiful picture of what it looks like to be the church. That's what I would love to see, and I know that's what you all would love to see too, in conversation after conversation, having that vision of saying those who don't have and those who have, they are worshiping the one true God, and, and those who have are given to those who don't have, and, and being able to care for and love one another. What a beautiful picture that could be. So let's now, with that framework in mind, I want us to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. We're going to encounter three characters here, three characters that we are to emulate, I believe. And Luke shines a light on these three movements in this text, and that's what I want to do as well. So let's look at uh, cha- chapter 2, verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 40. And when the time came for their purification, this is talking about uh, Joseph, Joseph and Mary, their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, who is Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. And so, let's look at our first couple of characters. Mary and Joseph. And we learn from Mary and Joseph first that they were poor in spirit. They were poor in spirit. You can see this in verses 22-24. through 24. So that's our first point for today. Poor in spirit. Mary and Joseph. What we see first is that Mary and Joseph were in fact financially poor. And you can see that here in the text because what was prescribed by the Mosaic Law for the firstborn son's dedication in the time of purification, you see that in, in Leviticus chapter 12. They were to come to the temple and they were to offer a sacrifice. And we read in Leviticus 12, And when the days of her, talking about the woman who had just given birth, Uh, This is again from Leviticus 12. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But then verse 8 says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean." So they were financially poor, and Jesus himself was one who was in financial poverty. I don't have a place to lay my head. Right? He was nomadic in nature. He was not someone who made a lot of money in the temple or in teaching as a rabbi. So they were, in fact, financially poor. But their poverty in finances is overshadowed by their rich devotion to God. Three times we are told that they did what was prescribed in the Mosaic Law in verses 22, 24, and then 39. We hear this, this resounding, they did what was prescribed in the Law of Moses. And it's this kind of poverty that the Lord calls each of us to emulate to be rich towards God, though we are poor in spirit, right? As the prophet Isaiah famously wrote at the, in his last chapter of his. Book Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My word. And Jesus would later open up His Sermon on the Mount with these words, Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, those who are poor in spirit know that they have a kingdom. Indeed, a kingdom that is greater than any kingdom here on this earth that will rise and fall. They have an inheritance and a place, and they place their confidence and hope in that kingdom. And so they can take being despised by the world because they know that they belong somewhere else. They say, though I am despised by the world, I am rich towards God and I will be with Him. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than be anywhere else. I'd rather have one day with God than a thousand elsewhere. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. is to say that whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. You may be having failing health right now. You may be having finances that don't meet at the end of the month. The Lord says, but are you rich towards Me? Because your body will fail and moths will will destroy and and rust will destroy. I really botched that one up. Moths and rust and thieves. All of these things will, will take all those things that you treasure... And you can't take it with you. So are you rich towards God this morning? Are you spending time with God saying, You are the one I long for. I may not have much. But in God, I have enough. Jesus, in fact, is enough that I don't have enough zeros in my checking account or I don't have... A house that I'm really proud of, or I don't have, you fill in the blank. But the question this morning is Are you rich toward God? Where are you spending your time and your resources and your energy? Who are you giving your heart to? Who are you giving your life to? As one author pointedly put it, Scripture reveals that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility. And instead, He pursued downward mobility, being poor and humble. And in that humility, we find the greatest redemption that we could ever ask or imagine. In our Lord Himself, who had no place to lay His head, we are called to calibrate our measures of success as how attuned we are to the kingdom to which we belong. And because we don't have to preen our profile for others, we are free to serve others. Let me say that again. Because we don't have to preen our profile for others to say, wow, they're pretty awesome. We are then free to serve others. We're not constantly gauging how everybody thinks about me and constantly hedging how we talk Constantly worried what they think about me and saying, I'm free to love you because I don't care ultimately if you make fun of me or if you think that I am foolish because I follow this Jewish carpenter who was despised by the elite of his day. So we see that we are called to be poor in spirit. And by being poor in spirit, we are rich towards God but then secondly we see in this second character Simeon in verses 25 through 35 in this second character of Simeon we are called to be comforted in the spirit be comforted in the spirit we don't know much about Simeon but we do know that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel verse 25 what does that mean well the word comes from the same root word used by Jesus to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter, in John's gospel. So he was waiting for this comforting one of Israel. And not only that, but you see throughout this, these ten verses here, the this, this Spirit is constantly at work here. You see it in verse 25 and then verse 26, verse 27, it's just loaded in here that the Spirit of God is resting upon this man and he is waiting for this spirit to be spread out everywhere because God is going to send a light for revelation yes to the Gentiles (coughs) see Simeon was devout and he knew his bible unlike the religious leaders of his day he knew it better than they did He spoke more deeply of the light of the Gentiles than the ones the world held in honor did. And he shone a light on them in verse 32. You see it, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He said, It's it's here. It's not just about redeeming Israel. That's glorious. But he says, This, this one is to redeem people from everywhere, even the ones that you despise, religious leaders. People that you think are the farthest away from God are the very ones that he will shine a light on. See, the religious leader of Jesus' day despised men like Simeon. They despised men like Jesus. And even the religious leaders of our day despise people like us who want people who look different and act different and who we think are the farthest away from God. Those are the ones he chooses. See, Simeon was ready and waiting. Ready and waiting. And friends, there are people in our neighborhood and in your neighborhood who are ready and waiting. They're ready and waiting for a high priest who will sympathize with their weaknesses. They are ready and waiting for hope They're ready and waiting for peace. They are ready and waiting for the riches of God's kindness to be shared with them. And if you think about this, this is not something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were too keen on, that the Gentiles would be welcomed in. That's ridiculous. And you know Paul himself was disgusted by the fact that Gentiles would be welcomed into the mix. But this is the very thing. After his conversion in Acts... In particular, in Acts chapter 18, he goes to the religious leaders, he goes to the synagogue, and he, he says, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, because you all are not receiving this message of the light to the Gentiles, this glory that God has given through His Son, Jesus, because you're not accepting that. Again, this is Acts chapter 18. He says, I'm going to go on to the Gentiles now. I'm done. I'm done here. And what does God reassure him with? Particularly, Jesus comforts him with these words of assurance. He says, don't be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are My people. And he's speaking about Gentiles. They are My people. These ones who are far away from God, they are My people. So my friend, Christ the Redeemer, church, there are people in your life that you come in contact with every day. Those we see on the streets of our neighborhood here, every day who are ready and waiting. They're ready and waiting for this consolation, for this redemption, for this comfort that comes by the Spirit of God. People in our neighborhood, people right next door to you, people in the cubicle right next to you, they're ready and waiting for a word of healing, a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a word of love, a word of acceptance, a word of grace, that you can give them. Because you have been given the very Spirit of the High Priest who has sympathized with our weaknesses, you have that same Spirit within you to speak that word of redemption, that word of healing to those around you. People are ready and waiting. Are you listening? Are you listening? But then finally, we see a third character here, Anna. Oh, Anna, she is an amazing widow. In verses 36 through 38. And in Anna, we see that we are to be fervent in spirit. I love this irony here that we are to be fervent in spirit because you would think that a widow who is 84 years old, that she would not be that fervent because she's tired. But Anna is the most fervent of characters here, isn't she? The one who the world would say, "No, no, no, she's doing that. You know, she's, she's near the end of her life. What what does she have to offer? She has everything to offer in emulating the kind of faith, the kind of perseverance that we see in Anna." Do not despise those who have, for decades, given their life to following Jesus and who have not lost sight of the redemption that He can offer people. We have much to learn, forty-year-olds, thirty-year-olds. 20-year-olds, 10-year-olds. We have much to learn indeed from Annas who are all around us. These ones who are fervent in spirit. See, like Simeon, Anna was ready and waiting. She knew God's Word. She spent time praying over God's Word and fasting, preparing her own heart. Now, while Simeon was comforted, that the promise would surely come, we see that Anna is fervent in her devotion. She devoted herself, we read, of worshiping God when all of her circumstances would lead us to believe she would be downcast, she would be sad. See, she knew misery, she knew suffering, she had lost her husband, and she lived alone for decades on her own. She knew suffering and loss and pain, and it was that suffering and loss and pain that fueled her devotion to God. Instead of being bitter and cynical, she used that to push her towards the mercy of God. She prayed and she fasted. She actively pursued God, and in her difficulty, she indeed was able to smile. Right, I, th- I don't think it's by happenstance that Luke mentions that she, her, she was the daughter of Phanuel. And Faniel, if you take it in the Hebrew, means the face of God. And this dear Anna, this one who was longing to see God, saw the face of God in the face of Jesus, didn't she? And in, in that, not only was she able to see the face of God, but we are told by Luke that she is of the tribe of Asher. Now, why would he tell us that? Well, Asher, if you go all the way back to the naming of this tribe, means happy. The one who should have been the most downcast and the saddest and the gloomiest was the happiest. She saw God's face and was happy because she knew that her God had not forgotten her. One of my favorite authors and philosophers is Nicholas Wolterstorff and I actually got to interview him on my podcast if I would encourage you to listen to it. He talks about suffering in that and he He wrote, I think, the best book on suffering and pain um, called Lament for a Son. But he wrote another book called Justice. And even as it relates to what we're talking about here in Mercy and Mission, um, I want to mention that. But um, Nicholas Wolterstorff talks about what's called the Quartet of the vulnerable. And if you've gone through our membership class, you know that I've mentioned this before. This quartet of the vulnerable is this, as you look across the sweep of the biblical storyline, you see these four individuals come up time and time again. And who are they? They're the poor, the resident alien, the orphan, and the widow. These four people who the world has shoved into the corner and wanted to look at those who are beautiful and shiny and You know, well put together, but the ones who are, you know, the the poor, the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, maybe we'll just kind of throw them a crumb every now and then. But he writes this he says, The widows, the orphans, the resident aliens, and the impoverished were the bottom ones, the low ones, the lowly. That is how Israel's writers spoke of them. Given their position at the bottom of the social hierarchy, they were especially vulnerable to being treated with injustice. They were downtrodden, as our older English translations nicely put it. The rich and the powerful put them down, tread on them, trampled them. Rendering justice to them is often described as what? Lifting them up. And I am really excited that, We're going to begin looking at the minor prophets together in this this storyline of the Bible where the prophets, they talk about righteousness. And what is righteousness? It is lifting up those who are downtrodden. Those who are low and in lowly circumstances, God calls us to walk with them and to lift them up. And at Redeemer, we want to be a people, though, that don't merely acknowledge the poor. It's important to say, yes, they exist that we aren't merely seeking to share the good news of the gospel with them. That is is extremely good, too. But we also want to do that with the wealthy, too, right? We want to share the gospel, the good news of salvation, as well. That's, that's That's an assumption of what we are doing here at Redeemer. But we need to constantly keep reminding ourselves what we're supposed to be about. Not only do we want to do that, though, not only do we want to share the gospel with those who are downtrodden and care for them, We want to be the agents of justice and mercy to help lift them up, too. Again, to quote James, right? What is your faith without works? You can say, hey, be warm, be filled, but then you don't take the coat off your back to give that to those who do not have. What kind of faith is that, says James? I will say this, in our current social in political climate that we have right now, particularly in the church, particularly in evangelical churches, there's a lot of talk about social justice warriors, or people give this abbreviation of SJWs. And they use it as a pejorative term. But let me be very clear what I mean when I'm talking about justice here. When I speak about justice, I'm not talking about the government being the agent of this lifting up. I'm not talking about the government being the agent of this lifting up. Like, hey, let's just give more money to the government so that they can lift those who are in poverty. There's, there's a good benefit to that, but we ought not to just blindly say, yes, please, let, let, yeah, just, you do that. No. Instead, in, in fact, hopefully you've noticed this, when I pray in our pastoral prayer, I hope that you've noticed that I do... Pray for our government, as we're called to do. But the lion's share of my prayers are for the church to be the church that lifts people out of their poverty, that lifts people out of their misery, that lifts people out. I oftentimes pray for that. See, lifting them out of poverty in spirit and lifting them out of their poverty in reality. So I want us to be a church that tells all people those who are economically rich and those who are economically poor, about the good news of Jesus Christ, but then to also say, yes, but this is what our faith looks like. See, we must recognize that justice is the assumption of Scripture. But but let me be very clear here, that justice is always a result of the gospel. They are distinct, but they also go together. Mercy that you and I have received will always result in pursuing mercy while we walk humbly with God. Justice for the vulnerable is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. But it always accompanies and results and flows from the gospel of being reconciled with God. So let's not confuse these things. When we speak about justice, that is not the gospel, but it flows from the gospel. I hear a lot of folks say, well, you don't want to compromise the gospel. Well, what are you doing to alleviate the needs of the poor? What are you doing to lift those up who are downtrodden? Because you can say all day long, I'm going to share the gospel with people, but for one, are you doing it? (laughs) And for two, what are you doing as a result of it? So my prayer for us as a church is that we will not just preach the gospel of forgiveness of sin, that people would repent and believe in Jesus as their King, and that in that they would receive the inheritance that He has promised to all those who will receive Him. That is beautiful and glorious, and yet we are called too to live here on this earth and to lift up those who are despised and rejected by men. We are called to be poor in spirit, Comforted in spirit and fervent in spirit. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about Joseph and Mary, although they were poor, though they were poor in spirit, they were rich towards you because you filled them up. We think about Simeon, who was comforted in spirit who relied on the Spirit of God to lift Him up out of His sadness. And we look at Anna, who though the world would say that she had no right or no reason to be happy, was happy because she saw Your face. And she was fervent in spirit. May it be so for us, and as Christ the Redeemer Church, that we would be a people who are these kind of people. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.